grab your Bible and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and to the very last chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and give your attention to the reading of God's Word today. All right, Westside, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you're using that pew Bible, that paperback Bible, that's page 623. If you don't own a Bible or have one with you this morning, um, that paperback Bible in the pew back right there in front of you should be a little blue, large print, ESV, or white. I, don't, I think we still have some white ones out there. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning. If you don't have one with you, crack that one open to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. When you get to verse 9 of chapter 12, look up at me and say, Great are you, Lord. All right. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And because we are thankful to God for his word, you can respond with, Thanks be to God. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is it. (laughs) We uh, come to the conclusion. It's been about 12 weeks, 12 sermons. And um, it's, it's difficult, like um, preaching through a book of the Bible is sort of like um, building your home. And you, you have all of these plans and all of these expectations and you build your home and then you live in it for a year or two and you go, we really should have switched the hallways or we really should have put this room here and done all that. And I always feel that way every time I teach through a book of the Bible is because you have all of these plans and you see this overview and you study and pray and then you get down into it and, and there's just been so much there. And, and you guys have been so great to teach and preach to and, and to study through this. This by far has been, I think, the, the most difficult book that I've ever had to study just because of its genre, because of Solomon, because of the way that it's written and sort of everything, but I believe that God has done um, some profound things um, through this journey and through this hidden book for many of us. One of the most common things that we've heard is, I've never really glanced much even at Ecclesiastes and never even realized, like, wow, that book is as relevant in 2019 as it was the day that it was written. And and what we said when we started the series, just a bit of review is, is there are four questions that philosophers sort of call the big four. And and, and the cool thing about this is you can be a non-believer, not not a Christian, not someone who, who believes in the Bible, but the reason why philosophers call these the big four is because every human being at some point in their life will either be engaged with these questions and have to come up with an answer to them or spend really their entire life searching for the answers for them. 
And, and the first question is, where do we come from? Right? That's a question of origins. And, and, and you even see this in little kids, right? Like, who was granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy, right? You know, it, it's always this fascination of where do we come from? What is the origin of life even when we look at humanity? That's, that's a big question. The second one is this, is why are we here? That's a question of, of meaning and of purpose, And there are many, many, many proposed answers to that. Why am I here? Oftentimes, even this time of year with graduates, I had the opportunity to speak at a baccalaureate service to a bunch of graduates, and I sort of broke that question down because in this phase in their life, it's where are you going to college, what career are you going to have, where are you going to live. It's all purpose, purpose, purpose questions. Why are we here? The third question is what's right and what's wrong? That's a question of morality, right? And oh my, there are many opinions on this right now, right? As to why is this right and is this okay and that's wrong and what's the basis of any society? What is the moral basis of that? And so it's where do we come from? Why are we here? What's right and what's wrong? And then the last question is where are we going? Right? That's a question of destiny. I mean, even like scientists agree that when you study the universe, the universe has a point of origin. You can trace it back. There is a beginning, and on a linear line, this baby's going somewhere, okay, right? And we're like, where's this thing going? Listen, those four questions, right? And, and even if you're a non-believer, again, you, you have to have an answer for these. And, and one of the primary things that, that we believe as, as followers of Christ is, is that the scriptures answer these questions. That that really the totality of this grand narrative and story that God is writing tells us the answers to this. Ecclesiastes fits in to question number two. Why are we here? The purpose and meaning of humanity. That's, that's really what we've seen all through Solomon's writings is, is purpose. And, and this man has wandered down many roads of wealth, of pleasure, of wisdom, of accomplishment, of all of these things. And literally, if you sat down with Solomon and said, but you don't understand, I'm going to try blank, fill in the blank, Solomon would say, yeah, uh, been there, got the t-shirt, Okay. Dead in row, right? And then finally towards the end of the book, he's, he's boiling it down for us today. And, and, and really, if, if this is your first time here, you can go back to the website and sort of get the review. But there's two main thrusts in this book that Solomon has told us. The first one is this, that you will never find lasting pleasure in a passing world. That's, that sentence is from another preacher, and I thought, man, that was a great way to summarize that. That you will never find lasting pleasure in a passing world. And, and we describe that as, as cotton candy, remember, right? Like, it's there, and it is a substance, until you put it in your mouth, right? And then it's like no purpose. You're more hungry after you even ate something like that. We said Solomon uses the word vanity. He says it's like trying to catch smoke. And, and man, he's challenged us on this. There's some of us who burn through relationships constantly. It's always other people. 
They just don't get me burning through jobs and careers, burning through all of these things because we're constantly searching for that thing. Well, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, that God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. It is literally an eternal void that this temporary world will never fill. But, but the next one is, is really, really positive. Solomon says that you need to think about dying. Happy holiday weekend, right? You need to think about it a lot because here's why. How you deal with death determines your quality of life. Solomon says, you've actually got to, our tagline in the series is, is to live your life in reverse. Think about the end of the matter. All of these decisions and all of these directions and everywhere that I'm going, we are so consumed in the now, in the instant, that when we get to the end of our life, Solomon's writing this and, and he says, I'm an old man now. And everything that I thought was so important then doesn't matter at all now. And death is, is literally the great equalizer. That everything levels out there. Everyone's going there. No matter how smart you are, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how poor you are, no matter what political status, nothing. At the end of the day, it all ends the same. And, and when we ended, we ended at the end of, of chapter 9 when he talked about this idea of death. And then in chapters 10 and 11, he sort of rewords again this idea of, of wisdom versus foolishness. And, and then in chapter 12, he, he comes to a conclusion. And, and it's really funny. This week when I was studying, really in God's sovereignty, how we're ending this, we said that Solomon has sort of been like our um, philosophy professor, right? That's literally what it means. Um, the preacher is, is how he refers to himself or the teacher. And, and it's like philosophy class 101. And what he's doing for us today is he's preparing us for the final exam. And, and this time of the year with, with graduation and school dismissing and everything, there's, there's always sort of the final exam. And at the end, in verse 14, listen, look, look at your Bible. Look at how haunting it is, the very last words that he pens. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon says that, that we all take a final exam at the end of our life. That we all give an account for this. And just like any good teacher in these short verses, 9 through 14, he, he reviews what he's taught to prepare you for the final exam. And so what we'll look at today is how he taught, why he taught, and what he taught. And we'll bring this thing to a conclusion. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. The first thing that he does is how he taught. Look in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught. You see, the point comes from verse 9. It's right there, right? Okay. How he taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of of truth. How, how did Solomon teach? Um, he's saying, I aspired to teach clearly, very clearly. And, and as I was reading and studying this week, I sort of pushed back against that a little bit. Like I was arguing with the Bible. You ever do that? You ever argue with the Bible? 
Are you more saved than me or something, right? Right, okay? I was like, bro, you're so not clear, right? You were like, a living dog is better than a dead cat, right? He didn't say cat. I just added that because I thought, because dogs are better than cats. But it's a different sermon. It's a different sermon, okay? But, but it was really confusing. And, and then I realized, right, I, I was reminded again. The Bible's not written to us. Right? This is an ancient book, but it's written for us. And back then, Solomon was writing in the language of the people, this this ancient proverbial sort of type of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is in the wisdom literature. And when he says that, that he tried to weigh and study, and then here it is, arrange many proverbs, it literally means that, that he tried his best to set words in order or to literally make his thought straight. And I thought, man, that's, that's fascinating for us. Um, because there's, there's three words that, that have the potential to, to ruin my day in the Jordan household, and it's this. Some assembly required. Okay? No joke, we have a trampoline in our backyard, in our shed, that has been in the box for a long time, Okay? Because I'm like, I know, that's Pandora's box. When I open that thing, right, it's just, and, and listen, if, if all of that stuff does not come with a set of instructions, no matter how technologically advanced all of that is, it's, it's almost worthless. And here's what's interesting about wisdom, okay? We said wisdom does not mean knowledge, That's what Solomon is actually railing against right now. It's not just about the accumulation of knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge. One of the most frustrating things when I hear someone else preach or read something is somebody wax eloquent for like 30 pages. And then at the end I go, what would you say? I have no idea what you even said. And what Solomon is saying is, listen, when it comes to wisdom, and really in reality, when, when it comes to the Word of God, listen, listen to me, there is some assembly required for us. We're going to we're gonna have to learn some things. We're going to have to carefully set some things in order. And, and, and many of us get, get frustrated with that. But what's interesting is, is, is when Paul tells Timothy, who's going to be a young preacher and a pastor, Paul tells Timothy how to handle the Word of God. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, here it is, rightly handling the Word of truth. Literally what it means when Paul says in the original language is to cut it straight. Cut it in a straight line. Because many of us grew up with, with the Bible being more like a baseball bat instead of, instead of maybe like a scalpel. It's, the Word of God isn't to butcher, right? It's to pierce and then to rightly cut and divide to the core in our heart. And for some of us, what, what Solomon is saying is, and man, this is so relevant in 2019. We, we have so much access to so much information. And we do so many dumb things on our smartphones. And what Solomon is saying is this, literally, information without organization 
produces devastation. It's going to frustrate you in your life. It doesn't matter about all of this knowledge. Yes, it's massively important. But what Solomon is saying is, listen, we have to rightly handle these things. So so Solomon taught, and he taught clearly. But we have to be very careful when it comes to making it straight. Because sometimes we can organize things so nice and neat that we organize God right out of it. I've seen the Bible become a textbook rather than a living book. So it's not just how Solomon taught, but why. Why did he labor in vain to put these ideas together and formulate these thoughts that were given to him by God? Well, he tells us why he taught is he taught for practicality. Like, the Bible is a waste If we read it like a textbook and it does not affect the way in which we live. We said that Solomon defined defined wisdom for us as information, which is massively important. The way to the heart is through the mind. Information plus application. That is what wisdom is. And, and, And he uses two real cultural examples for us. The first thing that he says is, is look in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Like, again, I argued this week. Oh, yeah, that's really clear. When's the last time you used the word goads, right? So um, a goad was like a shepherd's staff. And, and when the shepherd was herding the sheep or the goats, the goad had, had a sharp end on it. And it was to poke and it was to prod the sheep or the goat in a certain direction. Listen, this is what's so interesting. Solomon says that, that the words of God, the wisdom of God, is like a sharp pointy stick that pokes you. How many of us would have described the wisdom of God that way? That's so antithetical almost to 2019. We would have said, um, the wisdom from God is like a nice fluffy pillow. (laughs) That when I lay my head down, I'm restful and in peace. Solomon's like, I don't know what book you're reading, right? And, And listen, that's true throughout the rest of Scripture. Listen. Even the words of Jesus. Because there's this thing now to where it's like, oh, let's separate Jesus and the words of Jesus away from everything else because he's so different and his words are so new that he's throwing everything else that's old out and he's creating everything else new. And in John chapter 6, after Jesus has performed some miracles and fed people from bread literally from heaven... He looks at the crowds who are following him, not because they want their heart full, but because they want another meal. And Jesus stands up. I would call this sermon a pew-clearing sermon because Jesus stands up and rails against the crowds. And then this is the reaction in John chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said... This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And then in John chapter 6 again, after this, 
many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Do you know how many churches and how many pastors strive for every decision that they make for that not to happen? That is viewed nowadays as negative. That cannot happen. You cannot say something that is hard that makes people leave. And all we have to do is go, there is a time and a place for those words of wisdom that are like goads. Because they want a soft word. But Jesus says, listen, it's a matter of the heart And sometimes, as God's word says in Jeremiah, that the words of God are like a hammer that breaks a hardened, stoned heart. And when Jesus sees them turning, he says, oh, no, 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 don't leave, don't leave. What we'll do is we'll make the decision and we'll do the decision that you want. And we'll make this decision and we'll change the carpet. We're so sorry. We're so sorry that we offended you in any way, shape, or form. But he turns to the twelve and says this, do you want to go away as well? I know the gravity of what I'm saying is not what you expected. Are you going to leave too? And then look at what Peter says, yes. And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to go? Am I going to go to the world and to the wisdom of the world that tells me constantly everything that I perpetually always want to hear and then mix a little bit of religiosity into it and then I'm in this vicious cycle in my relationships and in my life and in my heart of hearts, I'm so heartbroken because I'm not changing. And Peter says, where should we go? And then look at Peter's response. You have The words, the words of eternal life. Now, let's let's make a logical conclusion. Words of eternal life are painful, right? Jesus had a hard saying, and the crowds turned. I saw this literally in action over this past week. Whenever, I mean, we live in Missouri, let's go blues, right? I mean, the St. Louis blues are going to the Stanley Cup, the first, right? This is incredible, man. First time in 49 years, man. And I think it's cool that no matter what state you live in, if your hometown team is doing something, man, right? If they're going somewhere. But you know what else I've noticed? There are so many more new blues fans. Like, I was like, you're into hockey? Well, I just saw somebody share something on Facebook. The blues are going, Gloria, right? I'm like, I didn't know. Are you from Utah or something? Like, it's it's interesting. But then I have family members who, like, have been going to blues games since the 70s. And it's like, oh, man, this is it. This is huge. I'm a blues fan now that the blues are going to the Stanley Cup. But for the other 49 years, I wasn't a fan of hockey. I love that Jesus says, do not judge. But I'm not a fan when he says to hate your sin. I love the fact that Jesus loved everyone. 
But I'm not a fan when Jesus named their sin and told them to go and sin no more. What the early church, Father Augustine says is, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but it is yourself. And what Solomon says is, listen, we have to re rearrange our perception. And man, in 2019, oh my goodness, everybody needs a star and a snowflake next to their name. And if you, listen, if you say anything that is challenging from God's Word or corrective, automatically it means that you are against me and you hate me. And Jesus says, this hard saying, it's actually the path to eternal life. And Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount and says, the road to destruction, it's broad. It's huge. Many find that. The path to eternal life, very few find it. This is very challenging. Solomon says that, that yes, I'm writing for practicality. That, listen, that these words are not just for information, but they are for transformation. And these words, they will be painful. But what we have to know is, is that they come from the shepherd who loves his sheep. Who do- <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever been around a goat? Have you ever been around sheep before? Do you know how, I mean, the Bible, do you know how the Bible describes God's relationship with his people? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Mm. Love Jesus is the great shepherd. That means that you're a sheep. And sheep are as dumb as a box of rocks. They'll walk right off a cliff. And then it's done, right? Pork chops, anyone, Right? I mean, that's how the Bible describes this relationship. And when we see that as corrective, we see it as harsh, when in reality our shepherd is so compassionate towards us. So compassionate. So wise words provide direction for us. They're they're sort of painful in this practicality. But it's not just direction, it's also protection. Because he says, then they're like nails, firmly fixed. This is, most scholars believe, when a shepherd was herding sheep or goats, and he had to set up in the middle of the night, he would set up a tent. And those nails would drive the tent pegs into the ground to secure the shelter. And very practical, the deeper the nail goes, the more secure the tent is. And Solomon's saying the words of wisdom from God, they're actually protection. They're protection. And I heard another pastor say it this way. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. That's what he means. It's not like thou shalt not have any fun. That's what the Ten Commandments are. No fun. Don't you laugh, right? The joy of the Lord doesn't mean laughter, right? It's actually, no, 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 don't hurt yourself. That's a, that's a distortion of everything that is good. And Solomon says these words, the words of Ecclesiastes, they, they provide direction for us and protection. And, and it's interesting, then he goes on to say this, verse 12. I got super convicted of verse 12 this week. If you know anything about me, you'll know why, because he 
talks about having a lot of books. Look, look in verse 12. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. What's Solomon saying? That we shouldn't study? That we shouldn't show ourselves approved? No. Here's what he's saying. There's a form of study that is actually avoiding the truth. In, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy. And he says, there will be false teachers that come in, and here's how you spot them. They always want to debate, and they never want to arrive at the truth. Constantly. All this information, all this information. Well, what about this? But it never arrives anywhere. It never arrives at the truth. And what Solomon is saying is, I have been almost like a journeyman, a tour guide, and I'm pointing you to a destination, to a source of this information. And what's so interesting is that he says that these words are given by one shepherd. See, People actually say that Christianity is so offensive because you claim to have all of the knowledge. Well, in reality, it's the reverse of that. Christianity says that all of the knowledge has been received. We don't claim any of this of our own. We say that God has given this. And that's almost like a humble brag that Solomon did, right? He was like, I'm the wisest man that's ever lived in the entire world. But all of my information and wisdom was given to me by God. And there's this form of always wanting to study and never actually arriving anywhere with it. This, as a preacher, terrifies me. It's, it's that time of year where um, the boats are getting dusted off and the rivers are close by. And, and this summer, I want, you to, I want you to look at the river rocks. And I want you to just guess about how long they've been under that water. And then I want you to take your kids and I want you to crack that rock open. And I want you to see how dry it is inside. That's what Solomon's saying. That there's all of this stuff that never pierces, that never leads anywhere. It's information that doesn't produce transformation, which always results in frustration in your life. How did Solomon teach? He taught clearly. Why did he teach? He taught for practicality. Because wise words give us direction, and they also provide protection for us. But the last thing is this. What did he teach? What did he teach? Solomon taught eternity, man. Because look at what he says. The end of the matter. All has been heard. This is it. Season finale. And you're not going to be frustrated with this one like you were the other one. Oh, I, know, I know who you are now, right? I know who you are watching that show. Okay, but in, then Solomon says, this is the season finale. Everything has been heard. Every path has been walked down. And here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. What? I thought you were going to give us like the thing, the stuff and all of that. And he goes, this is it. The whole duty and the whole purpose is to fear God and to keep his commandments. So two things in life boil down to this. This is how the trajectory of eternity is determined. To fear God, to obey Him. Do you know what we try to do? We try to reverse Him. We think obeying God will produce a fear of God. 
And that's actually the, that's actually the reverse. Because listen, we, we say this all the time at Westside. What we believe determines how we behave. So if it comes to a behavior pattern or a temptation of sin or an area in our life that we're constantly on the merry-go-round and I'm good here and then this and then it pops up and then this doesn't change and then does this and it's always popping back up is because you are focusing on the obey him rather than the fear him. And what will change your behavior is your belief about God. And we said that the fear of God is the right reverence of who he is. And it's not this watering down. It's not this, well, it doesn't really mean fear. Oh, no, it does. It does. Because this is what it determines. Who God is and who we are in light of that. And then he says there's this judgment that takes place. How do we deal with this? How do we deal this now on on this side of the cross? Well, Jesus actually tells us. Jesus says in John chapter 5, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And verily, verily, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is not something that we live in fear and trepidation every day of our life. This is what Sidney Grenier says. God's judgment is no longer a threat for Christians. That's a good spot for an amen. I'm going to read it again so you can holler amen at that, okay? God's judgment is no longer a threat for Christians. So we do not seek to keep God's commandments because we dread the coming judgment. Rather, we seek to keep God's commandments because we are grateful for His grace and for saving us from that judgment in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know what Solomon would say about our lives now? Solomon would say that the Messiah and the Christ has come and this judgment that we all feared has now rested upon his shoulders. And so now this idea, Solomon would say that you should fear God more. You should fear God more now because now he has sent his son and provided the way of obedience in our lives. This is the whole thrust of Ecclesiastes is what it does, is there's these moments in our lives, whether it's a doctor's report, whether it's a phone call, whether it's just a thought, when all of a sudden, we peek behind the curtain, and we realize, and eternity is out there. This thing is going somewhere. If I had to summarize it for you, I would say that Solomon is a lot like Arthur Stace. Arthur Stace. Author was born on August 6, or I'm sorry, February 8, 1885, in Australia. He served in the Australian military, and when he came back from the brutal war, um, like many soldiers, Author gave himself to drink, and he was literally known as the town drunk, that he would stumble around all the time, mumbling things. He would sleep on park benches until one day on August the 6, 1930. Arthur stumbled into a church where a revival was being held. 
and the preacher thundered the length of eternity. An author walked down and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And literally, it was just a radical transformation in author's life. The article put it this way. Every morning for the next 35 years, author would leave his wife, Pearl, and he would walk around beginning at 5 a.m. the streets of Sydney, Australia. He would have a piece of chalk in his hand. And at train stations and at bus stops, he would write the word eternity everywhere that he could. Author one time was apprehended by the authorities for defacing property. Yeah, that's vandalism, okay? And they said, How, do you have permission to do this? And author said, I do, from a higher authority. <laughs> that's great, isn't it? The town began to love him so much that he was known as Mr. Eternity. It's estimated that in the 35-year span, author wrote the word eternity some 500,000 times. It made such an impact on Sydney, Australia, that the opening of the 2000 Olympics, the bridge lit up, and it lit up with the word eternity. I think Solomon's a lot like Arthur. That what he's done through this whole series is that he's etched eternity on our hearts. And the big idea and the thrust of Ecclesiastes is very simply this. Ecclesiastes has engaged us with eternity. And I pray that the stone that's been thrown in the pond of your heart would have ripples and effects from now and forevermore. That every decision that we make and every direction that we take, we would realize that it's eternity is what matters most. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for your word, grateful for the closing of one chapter and the beginning of another. God, we pray that as we look at these words that Solomon says that he chose so carefully and so meticulously that these words are divinely inspired by you. God, I pray that as we have heard these words and have been challenged in areas of our life, that there are so many of us, myself included in this room, who are longing and searching for a lasting pleasure in a temporary world. And it can't happen. May you lift our eyes and may we gaze into eternity. But as we understand that everyone gives a final exam at the end of their life, that in a moment as we come to the table and literally in this way we connect with you through eternity, through these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup, that we would realize that we no longer fear that judgment because Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity into humanity and he took on the judgment on our behalf and that if anyone should believe in him that they should pass from death to life God I pray that you stamp eternity on our hearts today we pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ Amen would you stand where you're at and come forward and partake in the elements today as you feel led